we have a, a fairly extensive um, reading. We're going to start in Acts 25. I'm going to use my lapel mic, Victor. We'll see. Okay. This is our 90th sermon, so we're, we're coming up on it. We're coming up on it. Acts 25, where did we say, why, why don't I pick up at verse 22? Hear God's holy word. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow he said, you shall hear him. So on the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice amid great pomp and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he has committed nothing worthy of death, and since he himself appealed to the emperor, I've decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him." Agrippa said to Paul, you are permitted to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and proceeded to make his defense. In regard to all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, I consider myself fortunate, King Agrippa, that I am about to make my defense before you today, especially because you're an expert in all the customs and questions among the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So then, all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, from which the beginning, from which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they've known about me for a long time, if they're willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers, the promise to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly serve God night and day, and for this hope, O King, I am being accused by Jews. Why is it considered incredible among you if God does raise the dead? So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme, and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and the commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, 
to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So King Agrippa, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I kept declaring both to those at Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer, and by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. While Paul was saying this in his defense, Festus said in a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you mad. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I utter words of sober truth. For the king knows about these matters, and I speak to him also with confidence, since I am persuaded that none of these things escape his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would wish to God that whether a short time or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. The king stood up, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had got inside, they began talking to one another, saying, this man is not doing anything worthy of death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Let's pray. Lord God, you alone are God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, mystery of mysteries, the stuff of our affections, the one God, triune um, Lord. And we're thankful for um, your word, both the law and the gospel, and for the day in which we could worship you together. And pray now, Father, as you've called me to the ministry of your word for your people here in this place, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon all of us, on me as the speaker and us as the listeners, that we would receive your word and we would believe it and rest in it and be radically changed by it. And we would be those people, Lord God, that go out gospeling, giving out your word to your glory and the good of the people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are here at, um, what is this, the fifth trial. So the book of Acts, we've said this many times before, the book of Acts contains five stated trials of the Apostle Paul, six if you count the trial that's alluded to in Acts chapter 28, where Paul will eventually stand before Nero and be beheaded under Nero. Um, but um, the trials that we have stated in the book of Acts are Uh, two before the Jews, and in the trial, what the Apostle Paul does is he defends his preaching of Jesus as the Christ, and I love this, by preaching Jesus as the Christ. And um, defend yourself for preaching Jesus, and it's just another platform to preach the gospel. And then the Jews all reject him. And then he gets another uh, three opportunities um, to stand before Gentiles. And they say, defend what you're doing. And again, in the defense of his gospel ministry, He presents the gospel. 
it seems um, circular, but um, this is what he, this is what absorbs the Apostle Paul. This is the first Corinthians chapter two. Paul says, I suffer to know nothing but the cross. Did he teach on other things? He certainly did. But this was what um, captivated, this is what owned Paul. Paul was a slave, he uses a, a compound Greek word, huperetto. He is a galley slave to the gospel. That's what he is. And so he preaches to the Jews, they reject him. And then he preaches to the Gentiles, one, two, three, and they all reject him. And he keeps going. Now, when I say they all reject him, I want to put a little bit of a caveat. We don't have, regarding Paul's gospeling under trial, we don't have any of the audience standing up saying, I repent, I believe in Christ, though that's what he's calling them to do. And who is to say, if in God's providence, that subsequent Paul's sowing the gospel seed among the many people that would have been at the trials, that subsequent, some time in the future, the Holy Spirit would have caused that gospel seed to germinate in the lives of one of the people. Who is to say that? I myself was brought to faith many years after college, and I think it was a, a traveling evangelist that came to my college my junior, senior year. And he preached the gospel. I thought it was crazy. And then fast forward when I'm married with a couple of kids driving a truck, whammo. I remembered that guy's gospel words and God the Holy Spirit converted me. So when we give away the gospel, do we want to see people converted right then and there? Of course, who doesn't? But beloved, that's God's business. We, the Apostle Paul is just Johnny gospel seed. We're all Johnny gospel seed. We just give away the seeds. The germination of the growth of it, it is God's business. Only God can cause the growth. We are the instrumental means in God's hands. The divine instrumental means are the Holy Spirit and the Word, but we are the human instrumental means. We gospel, we're going out gospeling. And so we see God is superintending all of this, even when he goes to, to, uh, to um, Rome. All along the way, every Roman governor could have said, he's innocent, he's not going to Rome, he's not going to Rome. But Jesus Christ has said, you're going to Rome. So when Jesus says, you're going to Rome, he's going to Rome. He superintends all of this business. So every opportunity, trial, is a platform to minister the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're hard platforms. And um, so when we think, if we were governing our, our lives, if we could govern, we would be, we'd make a, a hash of it. None of us would govern our lives with any pain in it, would we? It would all be super duper. We'd be on a mountaintop at all times, happy, healthy, wealthy. But in God's providence, he orchestrates all things and puts us in a crucible because it seems to please God for us to minister Christ in a crucible. And that's what's going on. So this is under the government of God to gospel, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord, Savior to sinners in, in hard times. It was Samuel Rutherford, uh, one of the Westminster divines from uh, Scotland. He said, when I'm in the cellar of affliction, I look for the sweetest, the choicest of Christ's wine. Beloved, if you're in a trial that's there in your life by Christ, I don't know how or why, look around. How can you minister to Jesus, to people that God puts in your life in that trial? That's what's going on here. Another thing I want us to see, so we're not redundant. Every single time we look at a trial, we say the same things. I suppose we could. One of the things I want us to see with the Apostle Paul is he's on trial number five. And, and guess what he keeps doing? 
gospeling. He keeps preaching. He keeps proclaiming. He's been on... Felix kept him in jail for, for two years. And then he comes before Festus. And then after Festus, he comes to Agrippa. What we see, again, this is under the government of God, the perseverance of the saints. We are utterly passive in regeneration. That's the monergism aspect. In our life, the Christian life is active. Run, fight, wrestle, box. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Persevere. God the Holy Spirit will will continue the work that he began in us. He's going to bring it to fruition. We are active in the Christian life. This is not sit in the Barker lounge or put yourself in neutral and then Jesus just drives us around this life. That's not how it works. We are seeing the gospel servant of Jesus Christ perseveres. That's not, a, that's not a small thing, beloved. This is what saving faith will do. Saving faith will not leave Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Saving faith is a gift from God, the Holy Spirit, that joins us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it will never be severed. And we see the Apostle Paul saving faith by his continuance with Christ by his perseverance, by his endurance. Was it Winston Churchill that said success is is when men don't lose heart after successive disappointments or something like that? All Paul has got, one form of opposition after one form of opposition after another form of opposition, and he's still at it. If this was not, if this was just carnal, if this was Paul calling himself to the ministry, not the Holy Spirit, not the Holy Christ, After the hundredth no, after the fourth beating, where would he be? Selling cars, he'd be doing something way easier. But this is him joined to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he perseveres. He perseveres under trial. All of this is under the government of God to glorify God and as a platform for the gospel. This is a Job chapter 1 and 2. The devil comes to God, and God says, Have you considered my righteous servant? A Job, let the games begin. Job is going to get his head kicked in by the devil as a platform for faith. Look at what faith can do. Faith will stay with Jesus even when everything is opposition and pain. That's this. That's this. These, these people cannot look at the Apostle Paul. This is what the modern person does. Oh, you, the Christian minister is in it for the Cadillac. Not Cadillac anymore. That's not good enough. I don't know what you'd have to drive, something way fancier. He's in it for the cash. He's in it for the women. He's in it for the great times. Look at Paul. Why is he in it? For Christ. For the glory of Christ. And there's no one saying to Paul, you're just in it because you get the best parking spot and they call you reverend. He's in chains. Every trial is, he's under the threat of death. And what does he do with every trial? He's not dejected. He's not downcast. He's not sucking his thumb. He's preaching Christ. This is faith, beloved. This is faith. The Apostle Paul is not Superman. He's not Superman. What is the Apostle Paul? He's Christian man. He's joined to super Christ. This is what faith in Christ can do, or Christ can do through the life of the believer. So we see that. The sovereignty of of God. We see the perseverance of Christ's servant. And he uh, continues. Now, I didn't mention this last week. I forget why, but I didn't. And um, in that section, um, Festus, the second, um, the second governor of Judea, is trying the Apostle Paul. 
and he puts Paul aside, and then he has a private conversation with Agrippa. This Agrippa is Herod Agrippa II. And then, so he has a private conversation with him, and he's telling him he wants Agrippa's advice on Paul. Uh, Festus is a Greek, excuse me, is a Roman, he's a Gentile. As I'm going to argue, I think Agrippa, I think, I'll put this in quotes, I think he's a Jew, or an Edomite that's become a Jew. So essentially the Gentile says to the Jew, you know about these religious matters, you inform me. That's why Agrippa says, I, I want to see this Jesus. What's interesting to me on that is, not everyone that has a religious uh, curiosity about Jesus Christ or the gospel, not all of it is coming from God the Holy Spirit. Some of it's carnal interests. Remember uh, another Herod. Uh, John the Baptist tells this other Herod. Is it Herod Antipas? Is it Herod Antipas? Yep. Herod Antipas steals his half-brother, Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, and John the Baptist says, you can't have her. And of course, the wife does, I want to kill this guy. But Herod would lock him up, and then he would go to him regularly. He wants to hear. What it, you keep preaching, is Jesus to me. Don't you know that I can kill you? Yeah, I know, I'm going to die this way. Let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about judgment to come. And there's something interesting about this man that he keeps, it's not from the Holy Spirit, it's carnal, and we find that same exact thing with, with Agrippa. Yeah, that would be really nice. I want to hear this, this man who devotes himself to Jesus. And we saw this likewise with Felix. When Felix came, Felix's wife, which was his third wife, and she was the third, he was the third husband, it was all, a, it was a train wreck. <laughs> Drusilla, they also wanted to hear Paul. Boy, it would be really neat to hear this guy. And it was only neat up until the time Paul said, you know what? Judgment's coming. And you know what they said after that? Eh, I think we're done here. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's not talk about this Jesus anymore. But here we are. Now Agrippa says, I want to see the Apostle Paul. And Festus says, you're going to see him. And so this is his fifth trial. This is Herod Agrippa the, the, the uh, second. Let me take, I don't know, five minutes and give us some of the family history of the Herods. It's really interesting. It's kind of hard. It will be helpful if you went, don't, not on the internet now, but if you went on the internet and you could see the schematic of where they all came from. It is interesting to me. And let's start with, um, where should we start? Let's start with Herod the Great. This fellow, Herod Agrippa II, is the great-grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the fellow in Matthew 2. I think it's Matthew 2. Remember the Magi from the east, probably Persia, Iranians. Iran? Yeah, I think Iran. And um, they come to, um, to Jerusalem and they say, we're looking for the king. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the king of the Jews. And so Herod says to the Pharisees, where is he supposed to be born? And they say, Jerusalem, Micah chapter, what, 5? And so the, the Magi say, we're looking for the king. And Herod the Great says, oh, king, yeah, I'm looking for him too. Earthly kings, if they're not born again, do they love to hear about a rival kingship? No, they hate it. No. And earthly kings, if they're not converted, what do they try to do to any rival kingship? It's the old-fashioned way. We are going to kill you. That's how it works. That's exactly what Herod the Great did. He went, and remember the saying, 
He killed all the infant boys, what is it, two years old and under? He killed them all so the great wailing was in Ramah. What was he trying to do? Kill Christ. Who is that like? Who is that like? I'm going to kill all of the boys of the Jews to stop the Christ, the King, from coming. Who's that like? Someone say Pharaoh. This is like a New Testament Pharaoh. This is just as an aside. Infanticide is a religious tool of the devil. I'm going to say it again. Infanticide is a religious tool of the devil. It's a hatred of the devil against the image bearer of God because it's a hatred of God. So Herod the Great manifests it. It's, he's, he's a tool of the devil. He's trying to stop Christ from being the king. Now, let me ask you a question. Was Herod right that the kingship of Christ was actually a rival kingship of his kingship? Was he right in that? Yeah, he was totally right. He's totally right. The Bible says in the book of uh, uh, Revelation, chapter 11, that when Jesus Christ comes back, all of the kingdoms of the earth will become the kingdom of Christ. There's only two kings, and this is St. Augustine. St. Augustine would say, every, every person's a horse. If God rides you, you're going to go where God wants. Then Christ is your king. If the devil rides you, the devil is your king. You're going to go where he wants you. And so, who, who is our king? Is it King Christ, or is it, is it Satan? And Herod the Great was under the government of Satan. Now, his lineage is interesting, Herod the Great. His father was an Idumean. I'm butchering the pronunciation, also from Matthew 2. He's an Edomite. So Herod the Great's father was an Edomite. And what do we know about Jacob? Jacob, well, come on, Reformed people. Reformed people. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I. There you go. Sword drill, where? Romans 9, Malachi 1, and then back in, in Genesis. So Jacob and Esau, they were the twin boys of Isaac and Rebekah. So God chooses one, Jacob, he's the elect. And he chooses to save him. Now, it's not because Jacob is good. Jacob's a scallywag. His name means deceiver. And God is in the saving scallywag business. But then he passes over Esau, according to his own wisdom. This is God's business. And Esau shows that he has been passed over. He doesn't have true saving faith. He's a godless and an immoral man. And this is also from the book of Hebrews, I think chapter 12. When God calls him an immoral man, he uses the Greek porneia. So people that are addicted to a porneia is a bad sign. I just, it is a bad sign. He's a godless man, atheos, against God, no God, and he reveals that by porneia, by, by being addicted to sexual uncleanness. That's Esau. And so he, he, uh, he is an Edomite. This fellow's lineage is an Edomite. Now, uh, Herod the Great's father, an Edomite, marries into the Jews. No, he doesn't. He marries a... Um, he marries a uh, Nabataean princess named, it's like Cyprus, something like that. And, um, and Nabataean was uh, in modern-day Jordan. And then Herod the Great himself becomes a Jew by marrying into the, jo- the Jewish royal family of the Maccabees. I don't often quote the Apocrypha, but this is in the, the book of 1 Maccabees. And so he marries into this Jewish royal family, Maccabees. He gets circumcised. He becomes a Jew. So he's an Edomite that, that marries a Jew, and he becomes a Jew. I'm not here saying that an Edomite or a Gentile couldn't become a Jew, because they did. They could become a Jew. And this is why his subsequent generations of people coming from Herod the Great considered themselves Jews, 
Now you could look on the, you could study this, and some people will say, no, they're still Edomites. I don't. I, these men called the, they consider themselves Jews. Agrippa the first, Agrippa the second. This is why Paul says, I really wanted to give the defense to you, Agrippa, because you're a practicing Jew. You would know. Now Agrippa the first is um, the dad of Agrippa the second. We find Agrippa the first in uh, Acts chapter twelve. You remember the sons of thunder. They're James and John, they want to kill all the Samaritans because they won't accept Jesus. Good ministers. This is good ministers. Let's kill them. If they don't believe in Jesus, let's kill them all. And Jesus says, you don't even know what you're talking about. And Herod Agrippa I, this guy's dad, he kills James. And he, he actually says, oh, this pleases the Jews. Killing those who preach Christ is pleasing the Jews. And he was looking to do another one. And then this is Herod Agrippa II, that man's boy. The bad fruit doesn't fall far from the tree. It's not a shocker that unbelievers, oftentimes their children are unbelievers. The reason it's easier for non-Christian, real non-Christian faith to propagate easier than Christian faith is, it's flesh to flesh, it's carnal. This is why Hindus beget Hindus, because it's unbelief in unbelief, it's just fleshly. This is why it takes God the Holy Spirit for really for us as Christians to have true Christian children and true Christian grandchildren. It takes a work of grace. It's not not physical. That's why it's easier when you look at the unbelieving families. Of course, they're all unbelievers. It's flesh to flesh. And for the church, it's a mixed multitude because it's God the Holy Spirit that that regenerates. So So we see that he's an Edomite, uh, he comes from uh, a Jewish family. And now here we have, um, we have uh, Herod Agrippa the, the II. And we saw him last time with his sister Bernice. Bernice is his sister. And a little bit about Bernice, because these are the folks that Paul is on trial before. Uh, Bernice was previously married to her uncle. And she had two children with the uncle. The uncle died. And then she went to live as a... How would I call it? Consort. I'll use the word consort. She's living as her brother's consort. And that's where we find them. So in Herod Agrippa, he's also a scallywag. He's a murderer. And he's unclean. He's committing incest with his sister. And they're they're putting the Apostle Paul on trial. What do we learn by this? Murderers, fornicators people committing incest. Who are these people to to the Apostle Paul? Who are they? Prospects. (laughs) They're prospects. There's a place in the Bible, my wife and I joke about it. I'm not a farmer. If you're a farmer, would you want a clean stall? If you're a farmer, do you want to, I want everything clean in my stall. If you're a farmer, do you want a clean stall? A clean stall means you're broke, you're not eating. You want a messy stall. If you're in a church and everything's uh, clean, that means there are no people in your church. These people qualify for the gospel. What do I mean by that? They're vile sinners. These are exactly the people that the Apostle Paul wants to talk to. He wants to talk to sinners. Why? I know it's super basic. Why does he want to meet with, like, incest, fornicators, adulterers, murderers. Jesus has come to seek 
in to save the lost. Jesus says, I didn't come for the righteous. I came for what? These people. The Apostle Paul has been put from place to place. One really unclean sinner, one really unclean sinner, and Jesus says, these are the people. Open your mouth. What do you think about that, beloved? You like that or don't like that? Sometimes as Christians, we're in a Christian church, this is the Lord's Day, it's like, I don't know, I I don't want to be around like dirty people because we're not dirty people. The Bible says such were some of you. These are gospel prospects. These are the people that need Jesus. And so Paul goes and Jesus says to him, "Open open your mouth. Let's say Bernice, we don't know, committing incest with her brother. If she repented of her sins and turned to Christ in faith, what would happen for her? She's in heaven. That's what would happen for her. That's what would happen. Ah, okay. So Paul is arraigned before Agrippa, and they come um, into uh, the judgment seat with great pomp, and the prominent men of the city, they, they, they come. This is, what I find interesting about these trials is, in all of these trials, this is unregenerate, unconverted man putting Christ on trial. This is classic. This is a, this is a Genesis 3, 1 through 8. And this is, this is man saying to God, you will give an answer to me. This is man playing God. And they, man takes God and takes him off his throne and puts him under, well, you can't do this, but this is what's going on. Every trial says, we, we will judge Christ's servant We will judge Christ himself. But in actuality, what's going on is God puts man on trial. So as they try, it's like someone who says, yeah, Mozart couldn't do music. (laughs) You're being put on trial by that. So when they put Jesus on trial and Christ's servant on trial, God is putting them on trial. And he's revealing for us, because the Bible is given to the church, he's revealing for us This is the nature of unconverted man. This is the nature of unconverted man. So let's just take Agrippa with his sister. And in they come, wearing their purple and their gold and everything looks like gorgeous. And what do you think? This is man. I don't watch like TV. We watch Charlie Chan on the 1940s videos. (laughs) But like if there's like Emmys or whatever, I don't even know. But when they come, they're all decked out, wearing their fancy schmancy, everybody looks beautiful. That's unregenerate man. The outside looks gorgeous. Look at that suit, it's $5,000 diamond shoes. Everything looks gorgeous. But the inside of man is what? Is a rotten sewer. This is man, this is man. In public, in public, do-do-do-do-do, look at me. In their hearts, what are they? Fornicators, liars, committing incest, hating Jesus, all of it. Now, Jesus is sent to save these kind of people like us, but this is what it is. And so when you can dress up the outside, you can do lots of stuff. You can wear a gorgeous suit. You can do your hair. You can't do anything to the heart. That's God the Holy Spirit in the Holy Son, Christ Jesus. But when we look around God is teaching us as God's people, don't get fooled by the external. This is a Psalm 73. Remember the sons of Asaph? They look around and say, all the unbelievers are living large. They're wearing good clothes. Their kids are always healthy and look at us. 
we're wearing sheepskins and we're being abused. And he said, when I entered the temple, I remembered it's not that way. Beloved, God wants us as his people to reason with lenses of faith and have eternal views of Christ and not to value the things of time and space higher than eternity. What's going to happen to all the pomp and all the glitz and the gold and everything else? It's going to go away. It's going to go away. And, and the contrast, and look at the leading men. They all come in. The contrast between the enemies of Jesus and the servants of Jesus couldn't be more stark. In come the enemies of Jesus, wearing all their pomp. I think it was scarlet was customary for the governor. So you have who's it's, uh, uh, Agrippa in his purple, Festus in his scarlet. Everybody is looking fabulous. And then you have the servant of Jesus. What's he wearing? <laughs> He's wearing chains. And it was customary in Rome. You have, a, you have a simple cloak on for a prisoner. Here you have the Apostle Paul. He's, the tradition says, I don't often quote tradition, but I'll quote tradition. This is from 150 AD. It's in my notes. Um, it says he's like five feet tall. He has bow legs. And um, what else? About, he's bald. So you have a, a little guy with bow legs. He's wearing a cloak and he's in chains. That's Christ's servant. You have the enemies in pomp. You have the friends of God and the children of God and the servants of Jesus in chains. Which one's loved by God? Beloved, we all do this. If we're healthy and wealthy, God must love me. If I'm sick as a dog and in the fetal position and I don't have a penny to my name, God must not love me. Don't reason like that. Read Hebrews chapter 11. <laughs> Read Hebrews chapter 11. He chooses the foolish, the weak, the nothings. He's going to shame the rich and the powerful. It's this poor nothing in chains that's going to say to him, look it, what is it? I'd rather have Jesus than what? What's that song? You know what? It's Corey Ten Boom. I don't often quote Corey, but she's awesome to quote. You don't know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And she learned that where? Someone say Ravensbrook. Ravensbrook. In a concentration camp. That's the witness. That's the witness. Otherwise, they say, look at you. You get health and wealth. That's why you're preaching Jesus. Health and wealth. No, this, this guy's getting ready to die. He's got nothing. And he says, it's Christ. Christ is the riches. Christ is the hope. Christ is the way. This is the platform. This is the platform. And so God uses this fellow. We see the contrast of... Paul and the enemies of Christ. He makes his defense. I'm not going to... His, his defense is a threefold defense. He, he mentions three things. Uh, Agrippa says, go ahead, Paul, make your defense. And Paul's going to make his defense. And he makes his defense with three points. One is he says, this is what my life was prior as an unconverted man. This is how I was raised as an unconverted man. And then, as, and then he's going to say, this is what I was in my hatred as an unconverted man against Jesus Christ. And then he gets to his conversion. He regularly does this in the book of Acts. Those three points. This is what I was like as an unbeliever. When I was an unbelieving Jew, I believed the Bible, but I didn't believe the Bible rightly. Then I was raised under the strictest sect of my religion. No one is going to outlaw the Apostle Paul. That's what he's saying to these guys. These guys are making an accusation against me because I'm preaching Christ. No one is going to out-Jew me. I'm the best Jew on the planet. 
I'm the best Pharisee on the planet. If you want to go to heaven by law keeping, I'm going to heaven. That's Paul's defense in Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 14. That's what he does over and over and over again. I was these guys. And then he's going to say, but now I'm something different. I want to say this. There's only two ways to go to heaven. You're going to like, Pastor John just like flipped his wig at work. <laughs> he's not going to have a job after this. There's only two ways to stand before God and not here depart. One is keep the law of God perfectly. Never, to, you can't do this because of the fall of Adam, but if you could, if there was no original sin, which of course there is, then it's called justification by law. This is legalism. Justification by law. This is a Romans 9, 31 through 33, Romans 10, 1 through 3. Seeking for their own righteousness. I'm going to go to church enough, I'm going to read the Bible in Eucharitic, I'm going to flog myself, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. That's justification by law. And if you could keep the law perfectly, which you can't, but if you could, then God would say, well, you know what? There's no condemnation against you. You're perfect before the law. Come on in. Who's going to do that? No one's going to do it. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Everyone. In my mother's womb, I was conceived in sin. We all come out of our mother. We are natural-born little vile wretches. You don't have to teach a kid to lie. They lie perfectly, even as bitsies. Right? They, my, they bash the brother. They bash the sister. They steal this. They steal that. They defy the mother, the father. You're not teaching them anything. They're little sinners. So you can't be justified by the law. That's Paul's point. Paul says, when I, I, I thought I could keep the law. But then I met Jesus Christ. This is, this is Acts chapter 9. I met Jesus. And now that I met Jesus, I know that my righteousness, what does he say? It's dung. Because now I see the righteousness of Jesus. So the two ways are righteous, justified by law keeping, or justified by the gospel, by belief in the gospel. It's his law keeping. And Paul said, they're never going to bring a charge against me. I was taught by the best of the best. I'm the best of the best. I'm a former one of them. Beloved, this does help us. When we go out giving the gospel, it's always good to say to people, we have been changed by the gospel. We are, we, the gospel I'm giving you, I believe. The gospel I'm trusting in, that's the gospel I want you to trust in. It doesn't work well when we, when we give the gospel away to do it like this. Yes, here are all my theories. I am the good one. You are the vile person down there. You filthy sinner. <laughs> you filthy wretch. You need this, not me, but you need this. You know what the people say? Actually, I know you, and you know what's the worst sin? Pride. You don't even believe what you're saying. Please leave me alone. Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He says, I, this is who I was. I was this wretch. I did this. And then I met Jesus Christ. You can't be a good gospel witness if you don't know the gospel. And I don't mean just propositionally. I mean savingly. You have to, he met Jesus. This is the difference. I will say this because I don't want to go way too, too, too long. He's standing before people that are, they're not Christians, right? These people are not Christians. And what is he telling them? He says, I met Jesus. Jesus sent me to go to Jews, Gentiles, small, great, and he told me to tell them what? 
to rescue them from the dominion of Satan. The Apostle Paul would be, he, Paul would have a five-person church if he was on, on earth right now. You can't tell people about Satan. They think you're a loon. You have to tell people your best life what? <laughs> now. Is Paul preaching to Agrippa and Bernice? You know, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to be really healthy. If you believe in Jesus, man, boy, howdy, you're going to be so wealthy. It will be ridiculous and happy. I'm being silly, but is that what he preaches to them? No. Beloved, when Christ sends his gospel servant to unsaved people, he doesn't talk on the other things. He doesn't talk on the other things. Um, I'm alone in this church building most every day. And one time a young woman came off the street, lots of homeless people, and she walked up to the front. Women don't come in the church when I'm alone, so I met her out front uh, in the portico. And she said, so what's an Orthodox Presbyterian? What's that? And I thought, do I even want to talk about this? I mean, I could, but do I want to? No. So I said to her, are you a Christian? And she said, no, I'm not a Christian. And I said, well, forget about what an Orthodox Presbyterian is. Let's talk about Jesus. <laughs> Let's talk about, are you a sinner? I walked her through the law. I walked her through the gospel. Oh, okay. And she never came back. It's not to say when Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, he says, listen, this is how to, this is, I believe in Presbyterian church government. I believe, and he writes letters on how to do worship and the women should do this and not do that. But when you're in front of an unbeliever, they don't know Jesus. Are you going to tell them, you should be an Orthodox Presbyterian? You should be a Baptist. Believe election, which we all love. There's a big E in my chest, I promise. You want to do that? No. No, I don't. After you're converted, do I want to? Maybe. But before you know Jesus, what do you need? You need Christ. I know it's simple. I get accused of preaching a one-point sermon every week. You just tell people about Jesus. Whatever. It takes me 15 hours to write a sermon. I know I don't do that. But when God sends Paul to a person that's living in incest, they need to hear Christ save sinners. And that's what he does. He says, I'm rescuing you from the dominion of the devil. I want you to think of that. How much work goes on in Christian church, forget Christian church, in our own lives, that we live by the flesh, not by the Holy Spirit. What do I mean by that? It's easy to, when I was in AA, they used to call it a geographical cure. Your life is a wreck, and so what you do is you plan to move somewhere. That's a geographical cure. It's easy to do something external. It doesn't work, because you get there and you're still nuts. But it's, you're doing it, you're doing something, hoping that internally you're going to change. Could you build a building and stick chairs in it by, by the flesh? Yes. Can you rescue someone away from Satan and bring them to Jesus Christ physically? No, you cannot. How does that occur? That's God, the Holy Spirit. Paul acknowledges that his work is a spiritual work. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I love, says so much of the church has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. They're just trying to build a big church. He said, I'm not trying to build a big church. 
I'm trying to rescue people from Satan so that they would go to heaven. That's God's business. That is God's business. And the way that he does that is he takes one saved sinner and they give out the gospel. Come to Christ. Flee from the wrath to come. And then he prays like crazy that God would make that effectual. So this, this what he says, flee, flee from Satan. If you're an unbeliever, I was raised an unbeliever, all of my family, and you hear freedom from Satan, freedom from hell, freedom for heaven. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's exactly what Festus says. What does Festus say to Paul's preaching? Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, taught by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, Paul, what does Festus say to him when he gives him the gospel? You're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. Beloved, if the Holy Spirit doesn't change you and you hear the gospel of the cross, you're going to think, what? <laughs> These people believe this? This is crazy. But if the Holy Spirit works on your heart and says to you, you're the man, you're the woman, you're unclean, and Christ will save you, what's the response? Thou son of David, have mercy on me. Beloved, it, it is, um, it's a hard thing to suffer for Christ. It's a hard thing. The privilege that we have as Christians, as servants of Jesus, everyone has an eternal soul. Everyone that you meet, everyone you meet has an eternal soul. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. We have the words of eternal life. Give Christ away. Live on Christ every day. Love Christ every day. And every day give him away. Give him away. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.